your reigning, defending, undisputed WWE Raw Tag Team Champion Zach Veach is in the building tonight. <laughs> just kidding, it's just some 10 year old kid. Um, welcome to Motorsport 101. Again, may the record point out that that was King's idea, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 132 of Motorsport 101, the second half of the planned doubleheader that we we mentioned in the last episode. We're all a little bit tired, hence that intro. I can only apologise. Um, <laughs> we, we've stuck around in the booth for another round, so with me, as always, is Ryan King. Hey, RJ O'Connell. They've played this Kid Rock song too many times. They recycle it from about four years ago. Oh my god, when will it end as we enter week six of WrestleMania 34? <laughs> they said WrestleMania was coming to New York, but that's clearly a lie. Sigh. New Jersey's close enough. <laughs> and Chris Arne still in the back in the, in the background. Yes, sir. How are you? Uh, ready to fly out to Long Beach. May the good Lord help you all. <laughs> That's the perks yeah. of booking a 5.45 a.m. Uh, flight. Ugh. God. Okay, that's not fun. Um, like, just out of curiosity, because I'm British and I don't know these things, I love it's different in the States. Like, how f- close have you got to check in for a U.S. flight most of the time? Well, uh, I check in the day before. Usually they give you, like, a 24-hour window to actually check in. Um, All right, but it as for actually getting to the gate, it can be really touch and go. Sometimes I get there to the gate maybe forty five minutes beforehand. Uh, for my flight to St. Petersburg, I cut it really close and actually got to the gate right when they were making the first call to board. Right, right. I see. When I flew from Los Angeles to Atlanta, I actually did the thing where I just sat and waited on the floor. Um, in the uh, in the baggage claim until the gate actually opened to go through customs. God, don't don't be like me. Don't be a poor planner. Don't, don't be RJ O'Connell, everybody. Yeah. That was actually me but, on the way back from St. Petersburg. Uh, I didn't have a uh, lodging booked for the night uh, last night in St. Petersburg, so I had to book a hotel, and uh, that was not uh, ideal. But it is what it is. Remember, proper planning prevents piss poor performance. Is this one of those, like, uh, knockoff-branded, like, it used to be, like, a Ramada Inn, but then it got resold, so now the Ramada has two extra A's in its name? <laughs> Actually, it was a quality inn. wasn't too terrible. And, eh. and neither was a TGI Friday's next door. Hey, now, that, that's useful. Now that <laughs> certainly is an American casual dining chain. Of course. <laughs> so, in part two... Of, of this doubleheader. We'll be talking about IndyCar's Grand Prix of Phoenix. We'll be talking a little bit about the 50th anniversary of the passing of Jim Clark. Um, and talking about the future of Phoenix as a race in general, actually, which seems to be a little bit up in the air coming off this weekend. 
We'll be talking about Porsche and what they get up to in their spare time in their factory. Trust me, it's more exciting than you think. Um, a, a brand new Porsche 919, which is about to blow the brakes off everything. Um, you'll see in a minute. And we talked about the Super GT season opener in Okiara as well. It's almost like we've got a Super GT journalist in the room or something. It's really neat. Um, hi, you. RJ. Hi. Hi, yes. Uh, hello. Welcome. And, uh, of course, I had a very unique perspective as I told you last episode. Got to hang out with my good friend Sarah Connors. We drank a lot of things, and um, we watched a lot of race cars, and it was a great, great time. Yep, yes, indeed. We'll, we'll cover some of that as well, inevitably, during the show itself. This is the second time I'm going to be saying this in about ten minutes, so bear with me. But uh, places you can find this if you haven't already... The, the quality of the the editing booth coming into full display here. Cheers, Lewis. Um, <laughs> we're on YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. We're on Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101 for Facebook and your YouTube needs. We're on Twitter at, at Motorsport underscore 101. Our personal handles is at Harrison101HD. For me, at Ryan Eric King for Ryan, um, at RJ O'Connell for RJ, and at C the Harday for Chris. So check us out if you haven't already. And again, you can back us on Patreon if you haven't already. Um, Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, $5 gets you early access to both this show and Bike Live. We mentioned it in the last episode. Given the order of how we tend to upload these things, they'll probably be like this will be like the other bread on a Bike Live sandwich. Um, so there's a good chance it's already up by the time you're listening to this half of the show. So if you haven't already, check it out. If it's not up yet, Go check it out. Like you get the gist. It's it's gonna be a fantastic show. I guarantee you that. Just 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 trust me on this one. Um, that MotoGP race in Argentina was absolutely ridiculous. And previews as well for BSB at Brands Hatch for round two of their championship with the Indy layout. And World Superbikes is back at Aragon this weekend. Um, so check that out if you haven't already. Right, let's get into episode 132 of Motorsport 101, and let's talk a little bit about the 50th anniversary of the passing of Jim Clark. Yeah, a little bit of a celebration, shall we say, in Motorsport this weekend, a little bit of a somber tone as well to a degree, but uh, all around the the 50th anniversary of the passing of the great uh, Jim Clark, indeed King, and uh, simply put, one of the greatest racing drivers you've ever seen. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure we'll talk about the actual memorial. Well, the actual memorial celebrations held in various places next time we have Zoe on. But I'll go in, you know, a little brief description of Jim Clark's career. Where, thankfully, we did not go full Alex Jakes and do our Jim Clark 50th anniversary mention during our Formula 2 review. But... Oof. Oh, boy. That, was, that wasn't pretty. But, simply put, Jim Clark was one of the best, and he lost his life April 7th, 1968, during a Formula 2 race at the Hockenheim Ring, and he is arguably one of the greatest racing drivers of all time. He is at least in most people's... He's in at least most people's top five. He's in everybody's top ten. If you ask certain people, say. he was... One, um, not just great in Formula One cars, but he could drive wheels off of anything. Yeah, like he is the only driver, and probably will be the only driver to win the World Drivers Championship and the Indianapolis Five Hundred in the same year. 
insane. Um, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, he he was an incredible talent. I think another guy that as well that, that, that to have twenty four Grand Prix wins at that time when seasons were so much smaller. And he and... he openly skipped races like. The year he won yeah. the 500, he had to skip Monaco, so he only entered nine out of the ten races that season. No problem. He just won the six race, <laughs> the first six races that he entered. Yeah. How very, how, how very Jensen Button 2009. Um, <laughs> we'll get the title winning out of the way early, give everybody else a chance to catch up, uh, basically. But... Um, Gosh, an, an incredible driver, and in, in, you know, as RJ mentioned, you know, probably a, a top five yeah. driver of all time, definitely in the top ten. Yeah. Again, if you if you ask certain people from yesteryear, these are these are nailed on number one for many many people. Yeah. And Just um, also to note, no one since him was able to equal or beat his pole percentage or winning percentage. He's he ha- got twenty five wins from. 73 races. The only people who have higher percentages higher percentages than him in that field are Fangio and Ascari who raced before him. 33 poles. Second best percentage. Only person to have a higher percentage than that was Fangio before him. No one has equaled or beaten him since. When he won the Indianapolis 500 in 1965, he had led 190 of the 200 laps and averaged 150 miles per hour. In the mid sixties, <laughs> that that is terrifying. Like one hundred and fifty miles an hour in the sixties, where one crash tended to be your last. Not only that, um, it was the first ever rear engine uh, or technically mid engine car to actually win the Indy five hundred too. Yeah. And the, funny enough, that one hundred ninety laps in the lead was actually not the most dominant performance in Indianapolis. That was Billy Arnold in nineteen thirty, I believe, with one hundred ninety eight laps in the lead. But what's also striking about Jim Clark is no matter what car, the only time he wasn't competitive at Indianapolis was 1967, his final year. In 63, he almost won it as a rookie. He was only, I think, 30 or so seconds behind Parnelli Jones at the finish. In 64, he was actually leading, um, or no, he was in second or third place when one of his suspension pieces collapsed on the left rear. And in 66, he spun twice and almost won the race, but a scoring error, some alleged, kept him out of the victory lane there. Uh, he was fantastic at Indianapolis in the in the IndyCar broadcast in Phoenix actually paid tribute to him with yeah. the, showing the last car he ever drove in IndyCar. And funny enough, like, Autosport did a top ten list of his ten best drives, and they decided to make number one the drive that Jim thought was his best drive, the 1962 German Grand Prix, where... Uh, he forgot to start his fuel pumps at the start of the race, so he ended up pretty much getting overrun by most of the field in wet conditions at the Nurburgring, and he ended up yikes! And he over he ended up overtaking ten cars on the first lap of the Nordschleife. Oh my god! In the wet. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hadn't heard this before. That's that's obscene. That's that's ridiculous. How the hell did he do that? Anyone? (laughs) He's Jim Clark. Yeah. Yeah. He he sandwiched his 63 and 65 titles in Formula 1 with a 64 championship in the British Touring Car Championship, and he also finished on the podium at Le Mans 1960. He's he's a monster. Like, he he drove 
everything so well. One of those reminds me a lot of Graham Hill later on down the road. It's just just a, it's just a guy who was just great in almost anything you put him in. Um, just a phenomenal racer, an icon for Scottish sport in general. Um, and it's a shame Zoe's not here for this one, unfortunately, because she'd be she she this would be perfect for her basically on this one. But I'm sure it will come up again a little bit next week when she's inevitably back on the show. She is a super sub after all. Um, that's what she does well. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah but they, like the, they... the list of records goes on and on and on. Like for the longest time, he was youngest Grand Prix winner and Grand Prix champion. Like for he still holds a record for most Grand Slams, and it seem it's seeming more and more likely that Lewis Hamilton won't break that record this season. Thank heavens. <laughs> Yeah, when he, <laughs> when he passed away, he was Formula One's winningest driver of all time. He had just surpassed Juan Manuel Fangio. Yeah. And Jeez. and out of all the uh, out of all the ceremonies, which I believe Zoe had gone to some of it as well in Scotland, there will also be a Jim Clark Festival in Hockenheim. Um, there is also the groundbreaking of the new Jim Clark Museum in Dunsford. So that's Indeed. basically like the second Jim Clark Museum, which they had a big fundraising drive for uh, throughout most of last year. And now it's going to be a thing. They did the groundbreaking for it. Um, a lot of his old cars were out on display. It was a very good time. Yeah. And there's also one record that's really, really unique that I don't think that any other driver will possibly beat that he shares with Alberto Ascari. Because now it's impossible because all the races counts towards your points total. Uh he holds the highest, he holds the record for highest percentage of possible championship points in a season, which in both his 93 and, I mean, in both his, eight, his 63 and 65 championship seasons, he scored 100% of possible points. He got the highest possible score that you could have gotten. Yes, because remember, they do throw out your worst results uh, back in this time. Jesus Christ! It was like he was doing his best Jonathan Ray impression. Yes, <laughs> that's bonkers. Um, jeez, I mean, we we could talk about this for another half hour, but um, best leave it there and save it a little bit for when Zoe's on next time. But uh, salute to the great Jim Clark and fifty years on from his passing. So we talk a little bit about Phoenix, folks. Yes, the Desert Diamond. Grand Prix, the- Casino, Avondale, Arizona, Sedona Flats, Nicholas Cage's the- cult classic movie at ISM Raceway oh, in the desert. <laughs> whatever, whatever the hell this thing is called. The Desert, so, some, the desert Diamond some, Grand Valley Casino uh, Phoenix Grand Prix, I think. Thank you, Chris. You're the actual professional about this. I do what I can. No, I do have like one critical question. Why is it called the Grand Prix when it's on an oval? I'm sorry. It's just a That's a question thing. I can't even answer. <laughs> yeah, Boo. that's like a weird thing. Boo. <laughs> King in the sing bin for being pretentious. Um, <laughs> a Brit calling yes. an American pretentious? Surely you dressed. <laughs> yes. It's still my show is about being just mostly being the only Brit left. Um, I, have, I have to hold that reputation for being a smart ass. Now, make more for a one-on-one British again. Yes, <laughs> get the caps drawn up. Um, 
But the Grand Prix of Phoenix, everybody. Um, qualifying was fun. Like yeah. it looked like it looked like Simon Pagano was gonna get it. Um, the got 188 mile an hour average speed round here is just bonkers for a short oval. And that's slower um, than what they were last year. It's crazy. Remember, yeah. they slashed a lot of downforce off of the Universal Aero Kit in an attempt to make the racing better. Um, so, so yes, uh, Elio Castroneves' track record is still untouched, but that was still a bonkers couple of two laps. And going into this point of the season, uh, every oval that Sebastian Bourdais had qualified for on pole, he had gone on to win the race. In fact, it was Not today, first, Satan. Yep. In <laughs> fact, it turned out to be his first pole in an oval since the 2006 Milwaukee Mile race, which turned out to be the last oval of the Champ Car World Series era. Or they just decided in 2007, yeah, actually, fuck this. We're just a road courses now. It's fine. Um, we yep. also had uh, plenty of surprises up uh, towards the uh, up towards the top ten, like Pietro Fittipaldi qualifying in the top ten in his very first IndyCar start. That was very good. impressive. Robert Wickens on the third row in his not his first competitive oval start, but his first one in a long time. Like I I I I'm calling an order to remove Robert Wickens' rookie tag. He doesn't count. <laughs> like he's too good. <laughs> just just get rid of it. He's not really a rookie. Um, <laughs> hey, IndyCar has a long tradition of labeling people who aren't rookies. I mean, who aren't as talented as you know most rookies as rookies. I.e., uh, Simon Pagano being a rookie in 2012. <laughs> Half the champion, yes. half the field in 2008. Yeah, half the field in 2008. Because, like, all you guys are rookies, but Sebastian Bourdais, your four titles still count. They do count. Yes, sir. They very much count. Um, so, yeah, we, we definitely had, you know, we had Bourdais take early control of the race with Simon Pagano chasing by in second until... The first round of pit stops, and in what's become a bit of a sad trend for the weekend in general, um, Seb hit a member of his pit crew. But he wasn't and, the only one uh, that had problems. Indeed, Alex Rossi did the same. Pretty much, uh, almost a carbon copy of each other. Um, Seb claimed that his pit entry was like ice, apparently, on the way in. Um... And, uh, yeah, turns out that uh, Bourdais and Rossi had hit their pit crew, and in, of course, in IndyCar, that's an automatic penalty. Um, for, for the, obviously, for the danger involved. So, uh, it brought them down the field in the early going. And, uh, gosh, King, three pit crew guides get hit in a race weekend in, a, in, in mainstream motorsport. That's a, that's a bummer, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's what happens when your pit lane is polished concrete. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, Why is it polished concrete? Don't ask me. Anyway, I, I think th- I think it's for uh, fire safety reasons. That's understandable. Uh, that is very understandable. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. We all thought that that was as bad as it was going to get. Oh, gosh. Poor Fran. Poor, poor Fran. Um, mm. Yeah. We um, didn't mention it in episode 131, but get well soon, Fran, as well. It's worth mentioning. We didn't mention it in 131, but uh, wishing Fran a speedy one. For sure. <laughs> I'm gonna toss this one over to. Uh, I'm gonna bounce this one off to Chris. Now, Chris, would you would you agree as somebody who has written for IndyCar uh, in a professional capacity that uh, Phoenix has not produced stellar on track racing since returning the calendar? 
it really hasn't uh in my opinion mm. they the track when they modified it for nascar it took away a lot of what was good about the facility and the modification to the especially to the dog leg on the backstretch really did not do indycar any favors um i go back to what will power will, will power had an interesting comment in his post-race interview where they ought to give a set of tires to anybody uh, who goes onto the high line for practice like the last 20 minutes. Uh, I had a conversation with another writer earlier today, and he said, you know, you know, instead of doing that, just put cones up all around the track and forbid anyone from driving on the low line during any practice time. Yeah. I think that might actually, you know, help save the race because a lot of the, a lot, the way the layout is now – the backstretch dogleg really eliminates a lot of passing opportunities, and it's really a shame. It looks that way. I mean, you watch any highlight reel of this race. Again, the full race is already on YouTube for what it's worth. It's it's very procession based. It's 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 very very hard to pass outside of turn one. Or if your um, name isn't Alexander Rossi. Essentially, more on that later. But um, yeah, it's no matter which way it's lost, it, it like Phoenix, like it 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 just doesn't suit these cars or doesn't suit this series. I'm not sure exactly what, what how I'll describe it, but uh, let's just say passing is difficult. It's like watching a Formula One race these days. It's like it's hard. You got to have a, a like a two tenth of a second advantage on a straight to pass somebody, and that's. That's just not going to happen. Once and... upon a time, Phoenix International Raceway was an open-wheel mecca that just happened to host NASCAR races, and now it is a NASCAR track that just so happens to host an IndyCar race. That's probably the best way God to describe it. God damn you, NASCAR. Yeah. God damn you, NASCAR. Like, <laughs> the... They got Gunselman. Yeah, I yeah. think we're, we, we, we talk about it later on, but I, I really think that IndyCar needs to rethink the rules package when it comes to ovals like completely rechange the, the philosophy that they have in terms of you know power output where the road courses have the highest like almost i would say more than 25 percent more power than on the ovals i wouldn't be opposed to giving an extra 150 horsepower on this oval yeah where like they they need more power would it help yes it would help it would definitely help because you have more of a ability to accelerate on the straightaway to build up your speed so that you can actually get past somebody. Yeah, and there would and yeah. the, the you would have to you would be going faster in the corners, meaning the braking zones would be longer. There'd be more of an opportunity to pass into corners as well. And you had to like legit lift, not like go uh, feather the throttle, feather the throttle. You'd actually have to go whoa, get off of it. Yeah. Yeah so, yeah, so leaning towards the idea of more power on these short ovals seems like a logical step in the right direction. Um, yeah, it does seem like a, does seem like a terrible idea. Um, should we get into that stage a little bit there, fellas? Go yes. for it. Um, yeah, so um, I think a lot of the late race drama was a result of poor Ed Jones, who was running quite well. Having a great day for Chip, and then and then slides it and puts it into the wall. There's a, a late caution. We have, I'd say, about 20 laps to go, and Tim, Tim Sindrick at Penske rolls the dice with Joseph Newgarden leading the, from the front, 
to stop for fresh tyres. Remember this, it becomes important later. <laughs> um, so yeah, with 18 to go, New Garden, as well as about half the fuel pits from the lead. So we basically got a shootout between essentially New Garden on fresh rubber versus a couple of guys like the SPMs, Hinchcliffe and, and, and Wickens. And who, Rossi. And Rossi, who had stayed out and um, decided, elected to basically stay to the end on their used rubber. Um, so we got a shootout between New and Old and Strategy right at the end of the race. And turns out the the pit stop from Sindrick was the right call as uh, New Garden tore through the field like a hot knife through butter at the end of the race, went around the outside of Wickens and would go on to take another victory. The the mission to defend the one is going to plan so far for Joseph Newgarden. And one thing I think we ought to bring up, uh, IndyCar has a rule where I think within the last 15 laps uh, of a race, all of the lap cars, the lap before you go green, have to go down pit lane so that only the lead, so the lead lap cars are all in front so that when Newgarden made his pit stop, he was going to be the first car behind the cars that were on used rubber. Indeed. And so it was. It would just depend on how many guys actually were going to stay out. So it was a mm-hmm. very, very shrewd move by Tim Cindric to bring Newgarden down the pit yeah. lane. And when I'm, he... I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, re- I'm rewatching the restart now, and Newgarden goes around the outside of Rossi and Hinchcliffe after one corner. Yeah, <laughs> like... I watched that and I about jumped up and hit the ceiling of our hotel room with my head. That's how. <laughs> Yeah, you you just knew it was going to be a matter of time, and I think it was a couple of laps later he goes around the outside of Robert Wickens and seals the win. And Wickens did a fantastic job of defending too. Yeah, yeah, jeez, like like Wickens did not let him have it easy. Which again, given he was in a near impossible scenario here, um, he held off a lot longer than he had any right to. Like. We've got to talk about Wickens here. Second place from him in his, his, his second IndyCar race and his first race on an oval. This man is phenomenal. Like, I, I don't know how he keeps doing this, but uh, I, I know Wickens is obviously a rookie in all but name, and we know of his experience in, in open-wheel racing and DTM, obviously, but like, it's proving that St. Pete was no fluke. Wickens is fantastic, and what a pull for SPM he's turned out to be so far. It's awesome. And what a pull that all of the engineering and help that SPM has gotten from Jim Mullay to Lena Gay to everybody they've added to that team in the offseason. Um, yeah, SPM's for real, y'all. Yeah. yeah, both cars in the top six. Again, Rickens in second, James Hinchcliffe in sixth. A very solid double result there for SPM as a team in general. Um, like Hinch did a fantastic job as well, holding off the the faster cars behind him at the end of that race, including Oval Master himself, Ed Carpenter. Um, <laughs> but um, a great result for SPM. And isn't that funny, guys? Second and third on the podium, Robert Wickens ahead of Alex Rossi. Here we go. <laughs> it's it's the net saga of this episode of Beef History. The Indy rivals clash, and oh, they. They have a clean race, and afterwards, Alexander Rossi comes up to congratulate Robert Wickens on a job well done. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he respect. Could, he... and Wickens in the and uh, Rossi in the post race press conference said, you know, this guy should have had, you know, w- meaning Wickens should have had two podiums, and Wickens said, about time you said that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he had to get one little dig in, didn't he? Um, I guess it's understandable in the grand scheme of things. Um, 
But uh, gosh, yeah, a a, a a a a a thrilling finish to you know what was a dare I say kind of tame race in Phoenix. It Again, was we, better we've... than the last couple of years. Yeah, if, yeah, even without yeah. the finish. Definitely, it was it, it was certainly an improvement on the last couple of years. These new cars did help a bit. Um, Again, like it, it wasn't a classic by any stretch, but New Garden again a, a brilliant strategical call from Penske, and uh, yeah, a, a a comfortable victory in the end, just under three seconds um, for Joseph New Garden winning in the end. Robert Wickens second, Alex Rossi third, Scott Dixon, who's you know very vocal wife complained about this halfway through, oh, saying, God. "Oh yeah, these these cars are illegal. We've got to go. You got to go through post race scrutineering." Um, from yeah, seventeenth on the grid to finish fourth. That's a that's another very good day for Scott Dixon. Scott Dixon doing Scott Dixon type things. And what's crazy say. about yeah. Dixon going from seventeenth to fourth? He only had nine overtakes during the race. Yeah. So I think what what's interesting about this race is that you almost pit it like you do a road and street course where your goal is to pit early and hope that there isn't a yellow, otherwise you get messed up, because you can take the fresh tires and use that as your advantage. That's how Hinchcliffe uh, was able to leapfrog from fifth to first after the first round of, pit, of green flag pit stops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you well, you get some of that road course strategy, which do you believe that maybe for short ovals and short speedways that maybe they should have the prime and option tires? No. No? I mean, NASCAR experimented with an option tire during last year's All-Star Race. And we all saw how well that went. One hot night. More like one hot dud. Yeah, yeah, an option tire really wouldn't work on an oval because there are so many pit stops. And not only that, you look at... These guys are pushing the tires to the limit already as it is. Um... I'm not fine with an option. I, honestly, I'd rather see a, a full-out tire war than an option tire, honestly. Um, well, but, hey, if those Continental rumors prove true, we may get one uh, sooner rather than later. <laughs> well, the only thing about Continental is that it kind of... Um, I'm a little bit worried because their IMSA tire isn't necessarily the best, but if they can... If, if, some, if they don't contract Hoosier out to actually make the tire, you know... I, I would have more faith in what they can do. I know they make a really, really good road tire, um, but I'm not, I'm not too keen on them, you know, doing this. If, like I said, if Hoosier is going to be the one that's making it, and the Continental just badges the tire overall. Um, mentioning uh, Alex Rossi earlier, um, so he did hit his uh, mechanic. He did get a drive-through penalty under green, as did Sebastian Bourdais. He was, I forget if it was one or two laps down, but what's crazy about Rossi is that he drove his tail off and made up the laps and got on the green, on the leader lap late in the race. He just flat out outdrove everybody. Rossi credits his team's strategy of, from preseason testing, their focus was dedicated extensively to finding the best way to maximize their tire life and boy did it pay off um yeah. they were able I can to remember yeah i can remember when rossi was on struggle street at this uh oval circuit uh just a couple of years ago uh i don't think i'm worried about Alexander rossi on ovals anymore <laughs> 
Rossi is it's it's also so interesting because apparently uh, so Rossi and Marco and Dreddy uh, switched numbers, and I think they also switched uh, crews and everything. And you look at where the 27 car is now compared to where it was last year. You know, a podium at St. Pete, a podium at Barber, what, uh, not Barber, at Phoenix. Uh, what could have been actually a win at St. Pete if, you know, he wouldn't have lost it on the paint. Um, and yet Marco started 20th in the 98 car and finished 12th uh, I was listening to Marco during the race uh, driving by the way and I have to mention this so if you have your Phoenix ISM raceway drinking games finish your glass now driving a retro paint scheme going back 25 years to his grandfather's Mario's last win um, I was listening to Marco's radio during the race uh, needless to say he was not happy during the race um, almost sounded a little bewildered because some of the times he didn't actually know what position he was running in who goodness it was it was not great uh in fairness the car did look very nice um having oberto effectively take the place of tetsuko on mario's old car and circle k taking the place of the now bankrupt k bart <laughs> rest in peace brick and mortar stores damn you amazon uh Ryan Hunter Ray had another fine day. He finished in fifth. James Hitchcliffe came very close to winning at times, still coming away with a productive sixth place finish. And boy, SPM, they are really the class of field. Ed Carpenter also started on the ninth row and finished a productive seventh, which for somebody who has always had the speed in recent years, just never could bring the car home. Um, that's a good result for Ed Carpenter. I'd say so as well, considering he's also just, he just does part-time driving, just does the ovals. Uh, he did he did a good job. He kept his nose clean. Um, unfortunately, not every driver that does part-time racing in IndyCars was able to claim that. Uh, the very first victim of the race was Pietro Fittipaldi. You know. Oh, golly, yes. He brought out the, um, he brought out the first caution, um, hitting the wall, coming out of the last corner. A very tough way to end what was a very very solid IndyCar debut after he qualified ten, uh, qualified tenth on the grid. What was good about Pietro's um, incident though was that it was not heavy wall contact. It was light, so he wasn't you know injured in any way. He was just fine. Nothing was you know amiss. Um, fun fact: his grandfather Emerson, his penultimate win was actually at Phoenix in 1994. Um, for Team Penske. Um, and he threw away the 93 race, which inevitably led to Mario Andretti's last win. Yep, he wasn't the only Penske driver to throw away that race, though. Um, oh, buddy. Paul Tracy, oh, you had dear. a two-lap lead. <laughs> what What on earth happened? Uh, trying to pass Jimmy Vassar in turn one, he uh, lost control, and, uh, yeah, the wall uh, ate him, so to speak. Um, in fact, Jimmy actually was on a conference call with Mario earlier in the week and actually talked a little bit about um, about that race and actually kind of laughed a little bit about how he was, you know, being thrashed by uh, Penske and Vassar, not and uh, Tracy on the uh, TV broadcast. And then, of course, where does Vassar finish? I think he finished third in that race. Um, so going back to uh, the race Saturday night, uh, other rookies that had issues, Kyle Kaiser. Uh, he also uh, tagged the wall in his Junkos yeah. racing machine and turns three and four. What's interesting about that incident and also Will Powers' incident in the race 
race control did not throw yellows for either of those incidents. Yeah, and Will Power had led a race high 80 laps up until he hit the wall on lap 153, which took another strong car out of contention. And he uh, swore pretty badly at Rossi afterwards because he felt like Rossi had uh, overtaken him late in the turn. Rossi was being very aggressive because he had to be to get those laps back that he was down. Rossi <clears throat> took no prisoners, and ultimately he had to be aggressive because he wasn't going to get onto the lead lap if he wasn't aggressive. Um, so Power hits the wall. Kaiser hits the wall. Both are out. Neither incident necessitated a caution. Uh, IndyCar race control was really on the down low with calling a lot of things that might have been that could have been called like cautions. Um, those were two incidences where they could have called cautions, and they could have also called a caution for another incident that did not involve wall contact but did involve loose oh, equipment. Oh. oh boy, Mateus laced. He had a mm -hmm. rough time. The runaway tire. Oh, by the way, I'm back, by the way. Hi, guys. <laughs> oh, we didn't know you were gone. <laughs> so, of course you didn't. So, RJ, tell us about uh, Matthias Leist. Um, he, had a, uh, he had a pit stop, and uh, one of his wheels fell off. And he, uh, so he was turned all around, so he decided to go ahead and ride the car so he could go back to the pits and get it fixed. And in doing a burnout to try and get the car turned back around, he almost clips a safety worker with just ventured out onto the track somewhere. Yep. He, he, he literally leaps back over the wall. It's kind of funny to watch, actually. <laughs> and God. honestly, I don't know why the safety guy was there, you know, trying to go over the wall. Um, but still, it's not necessarily a good idea to do a burnout on pit road when you have only three wheels. Now, looking at this particular tire, like where it rolled, it actually rolled out of pit lane, and then it rolled. It 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 was very much like the Marcus Ambrose tire from V8 Supercars when it's rolling down the uh, long straightaway, mm -hmm. and then it goes onto the tire barrier at the chicane. So it rolls out of pit lane, and then it it kits the banking and it stops and then the momentum takes it back down and it rolls back behind the pit exit wall on the left hand side so it actually clears pit lane all by itself I, I gave it a 9 out of 10 the Russian judge gave it a 6 <laughs> dang it a lotion oh. yeah poor old Ed Jones had, had, this, had a good had a top three finish in the bag until he hit the wall coming out of turn four to force the last caution. I really feel bad for him. He um, he was running in second place at the time he uh, hit the uh, wall, and I had, with another group of friends of mine, I actually predicted him to win. Um, he did not put a wheel wrong until he got behind Spencer Piggott there. They had, a, um, they had an issue there late in the going, and ultimately... <laughs> Although I hate to say it, his incident really was what enabled the, us to have a really, really nice finish. Um, yeah. It would have been his best result in IndyCar, too, uh, after finishing third at the uh, Indianapolis 500 last year. With a broken like car, his, by the way. Yeah. Or damaged one, by the bad. way. I, I feel like his, uh, his time is going to come here very, very soon. Um, that run just reinforced Chip Ganassi's faith in him. Uh, it wasn't the outcome that he was expecting, but... Ed Jones has done well with the next two tracks we go to, Long Beach and Barker Motorsports Park, and so has Chip Ganassi Racing historically. I think he'll be all right going forward. 
Uh, one problem with Chip Ganassi Racing at Barber, uh, they still have not won there. Oh, yeah, that's right. Shoot, because I remember Scott Dixon gets on the podium. There Dixon has the many podiums that Barber, but still has not sealed the deal. Uh, yes, that's, that's right. Good good eye. Uh, Tony Kanan's been quietly productive in his first two starts with AJ Foyt Enterprises. This was an eighth-place finish after starting ninth. Um, drove a clean and consistent race, and he's in the top ten in the standings after two races. Which, by the way, we have seven teams represented in the top 10 of the IndyCar Drivers Championship after two races. It's still very early on, but is that encouraging, or is that just a sign of a false dot? Um, I'd say very encouraging, um, although we still we still have Long Beach, in my opinion, is going to be a nice little shakeup. Um, Barber, if it's wet, we could. it's been wet a few times, we could see that you know, throw an interesting wrench in the strategy. But, of course, let's, hey, Indy is double points, and we have a lot of one-off uh, opportunities with one maybe coming in this coming week. We'll talk about that later on. Um, but I think it's very encouraging to have seven different teams represented in the top ten. Um, I believe Newgarden is top of the standings right now at 77 yes. points. With the victory, he moves to the top of the board at 77. Five points ahead of Alexander Rossi at 72. Sebastian Bourdais... Um, did not have the result that his, uh, his race and his weekend deserved, but he still hangs on to third with 70 points, so he's not out of it just yet. Sebastian Bourdais and Dale Coyne Racing with Basser Sullivan, still a championship contender. Ray Rahal put together another strong finish after his podium in St. Pete, uh, got ninth at Phoenix, and he's still fourth in the championship at 63 points, ahead of Ryan Hunter Ray with another solid drive. He has 62 points and lies fifth in the championship. James Hinchcliffe at 61. Scott Ditson at 60. Robert Wickens at 57. Tony Kanan at 50, 43. And Marco Andretti, despite all of his struggles at Phoenix, in the throwback car, still in the top 10 at 40 points. So between 4th uh, through 7th in the championship, he had a spread of just 3 points. I know a little bit of that is early days still, um, of course, because there's only two races in, but like yeah. the fact that there's so many different dudes from so many different teams in the mix is like really reassuring for the series. Like, you know, I think I think seven of the ten teams have at least yes. one guy in the top yeah. ten. Yes, we did cover that in your yeah. absence. We do have uh, we do have one of the rookies in the top ten, of course, Robert Wickens. It's it's going to be a good season. The um, most reassuring, sorry, sorry, Ryan, if I may, RJ. The most reassuring thing for me here is that no matter what team you're on, if you have your setup and your strategy figured out, you can get a good result here. That's not true in every form of motorsport. You can have you know the best, you know the great drivers and the and great setup and great everything. But, you know, without the right machinery, you're not going to do very well here. Dale Coyne Racing is still the smallest team on the grid, and yet, you know, they won the season opener. They won pole. They was, Phoenix was their first ever oval pole. And Dale Coyne Racing. That's in a history that spans nearly 35 years. Yeah, going back to the 1980s, they've never gotten a pole in an oval. It was only their second pole overall. In the IndyCar, you can score 
these results if you know what you're doing. No matter if in some other championships, if and if you have like, if you no matter what you do, no matter how well you figure out your car, no matter how well you figure out your strategy and everything, you can only get maybe as high as like a sixth or a seventh, no matter what. Here, anything's possible, which I love that aspect of IndyCar racing. I love it. It's been it's been very good. That's that's why I enjoy it so much, and that's why you know, after the race with both mine and my Sarah's favorites on the podium, it, it was just such a good time, um, just to, just to celebrate that together. And of course, just ah, oh, what a good race! I know it wasn't like an all-time classic it was a better phoenix race than it happened the last couple of years um which is i'll take it yeah um which of course this might now be the last time we see phoenix back on the calendar like i said this was a staple of of american championship car racing in the 60s 70s 80s 90s up through the mid 2000s and there's no plans to happen in 2019 the attendance was not the best it certainly looked like there was a lot of empty grandstands out there. Um, ISM Raceway is, of course, getting reconfigured to where the front, the back, the dog leg is now the front stretch, and now the back, now the front stretch is now the back stretch. Um, it's it's the last of a dying breed. It's the it's one of the few short ovals that IndyCar has left after Iowa, because we've seen Milwaukee. Uh, Milwaukee has g- gone with all of its history. Nazareth Speedway has gone with all of its history. Um, there's not really a whole lot of short ovals left on the IndyCar calendar, and that's really a shame because it can it can produce some very good racing at times. Agreed. And yeah. Phoenix, with that, with how many years it's been on the schedule, going back to the '60s, you know, people were asking for this race back for so many years, and. To see it go out like this is not a good thing. The one, I guess, good takeaway that you have from this event is that apparently, according to uh, track officials, hospitality suites were sold out. And corporate money is where you know tracks make a lot of money on these IndyCar races. If they keep selling out their suites, there's, I would say there's a good chance that they would have the race back because, let's face it, that's, that's where you're going to move your move your dollar bills and all um but not having as good of a crowd it definitely does not look that good on tv and i i'd like to see if they can try and get an extra support race or two out there you had usac out there running uh, with the indy cars and that was pretty cool according to a friend of mine that was out there but i'd like to see if we can get some more on-track action when you race an on road or street course in indycar you have most of the time the maserati to indy is there and or some sports cars like Pro World Challenge or IMSA WeatherTech or um, I was about to say um, all the road Indy categories it seems like a logical fit and also that championship does need more ovals on the calendar short ovals at least mm-hmm. well the thing is with the road Indy is that a lot of the teams don't run a lot don't like to run the ovals because of fears of crash damage which is why especially in USA 2000 and in Pro Mazda they've increased the points that you can earn on an oval by one and a half times you have one oval in USA 2000, two in Promaz, and three in Indy Lights. Although, in a perfect world where you don't have to worry about budgets nearly as much and they're cut down quite a bit, I would have two in USA 2000, three in Promaz, and four in Indy Lights. Um, and in my opinion, Indy Lights should be racing at Iowa, not at Iowa, at, um, well, they are at Iowa, but they should be racing at Phoenix. 
um, to have a, an additional short oval on the schedule. Um, although, but, if you really wanted to have a wild card, have it like an intermediate track, like let's say Texas. Yeah, but I, I really think that while the clearly the current present state of things are are not good for you know Phoenix, I. I think the the new TV deal will definitely help things along. The, the ratings will Agreed. certainly increase, and historically, you know, research has always shown that even that ovals always rate better in terms of TV ratings compared to the road courses. Strangely, mm. yeah, and it's a it's a Saturday night race. It's a very good time for the American viewers, not so much for the UK audience, but. You know. Yeah, like having two thirty in the morning starts is not ideal for the UK in any way, shape, or form. But well, it's, you know, it's, it's, not, you learn. it's not your national championship. No, far from it. And you know, BT Sport will probably would have done well to have like ten viewers at that time slot. Really, I think Zoe was one of them. To be fair, bless her. Um, Hi Zoe. She made, she made it- Hi Zoe. Uh, yeah, you made it quite clear that she was going to stay up and go through the night in a hotel room at two thirty in the morning. She's a braver person than me. Um, I, 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 I knew I was never going to make it, so I was like, I'm not even going to try, uh, basically. But yeah, just it, 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 it's a, it's a bummer because I, like, I, I see the potential in Phoenix. I really do, and I. I don't like the trend of ovals going away from IndyCar and as you, as you said, like small and large. Like I'm still gutted Fontana isn't on the calendar anymore. You're not the, the last only time one. We were there. And that was an incredible race the last time we were at Fontana. That was the IndyCar race I watched from behind my my sofa. But like um, the, the, the but, you know. one thing that doesn't help the series is schedule instability. Dropping tracks mm. and adding tracks constantly does not help TV ratings. It does not help attendance. It helps no one. Right? Yeah. If you, if you like, does that does IndyCar's calendar has changed? Like I've, I've only been watching for what? This is, like, this is my fourth season watching full time, and the calendar's not been the same every year. Like a round or two has been chopped or changed here and there. I think every year since I started watching in 2015. So it's like. It causes problems. It's for organizers, for TV networks. If you're changing it every year, then it's just going to end up being problems, you know. Yeah, but you know, it is. It's one of those things. It's not ideal to say the least. Yeah, and um, I, I would say, thankfully, we've we've we have a model of a way forward of something that would work. The, the gateway model of things of how to introduce an oval to the calendar. Yes. Right. They, the way they promoted that race was incredible. Yeah. yeah. And, and apparently, according to a lot of the press who were in Phoenix at the time, like, they had no advertising for the race. Actually, the billboards that ISM Raceway had around the area were still advertising the... Were, well, they're advertising the NASCAR race in November yeah, and Yikes. they've already started work on renovating the track with the with the changes laid out for later this year. Um, I hope it stays around. I hope they can figure out a racing package that's going to be compelling, because I think Phoenix is a place that has a special place in the sports history. We've already seen the aforementioned Milwaukee Mile and Nazareth Speedway go basically to abandonment. Yeah, like Milwaukee. 
technically can still be saved, but like the amount in, of, of investment it would take, it would pretty much the series itself would need to revive Milwaukee. Yeah, and pretty much you have Road America in that same market anyway, which kind of makes it redundant for, for as crappy as that is. But you know, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Give it a uh, give it a solid. Um, what's it? Mm. Mm. Six out of ten. Yeah, I, I'm leaning towards six too. Six defenses yeah. of the one out of ten. <laughs> six defenses of the one. Yeah, six and a half, slightly loose AJ Foyt racing wheels out of ten. Um, solid, nothing special, but still above average for Phoenix, um, for better or worse. Hopefully this isn't the last time we go there, but, you know. It's we have no hopefully. time to think about it because next week we got Long Beach. Yeah. Woo! We got, a, we got an IndyCar IMSA doubleheader. I think we've also got stadium super trucks. We do. All the major yeah. food groups. <laughs> all the major food groups at, at the beach. Oh, yeah. We've got your proteins, your carbs, and your fats. Yep. It, going off into like a weird tangent that kind of came up in my mind about the only way Milwaukee coming back is if, you know, the series revived it. Do you really think that, you know, Indianapolis would ever go back to you know, part ownership of other tracks, because the last time they tried that, I believe, was the Walt Disney World Speedway. The uh, Mick Yard. And, like, before that, in the 70s, they bailed out Ontario, which no longer exists and eventually got replaced with Fontana. Yes, Motorsport 101, the your number one source of Ontario Motor Speedway related facts. We're not kidding. Yeah, according yes. according to YouTube, my brief history of the Ontario Motor Speedway is the most watched video about Ontario Motor Speedway. Thanks a bunch, King. Doing the Lord's work as always. What they need <laughs> is to just take Iowa Speedway, and I'm not a fan of just like cloning ovals because, you know, they did this with Charlotte uh, and just ruined everything, but... Um, I, I could see there being a market for one other Iowa Speedway in another part of the world. Well, there is another, you know, often neglected part of the country that has a Speedway, I would say, vaguely similar to Iowa. Maybe you could, you know, stretch it out. I mean, renovate it to make it more like Iowa, where you have uh, about 40 minutes outside of Seattle, you have Evergreen Speedway. I was thinking more on the lines of a, a track that's slightly shorter than uh, Iowa that's in another area of the country that IndyCar should probably look at again. It's in the uh, southeast, um, right are, outside are, of... Are we thinking Richmond? Yes, we are. Go back, oh. Going back to Richmond. That would, not, that would not be a bad idea either. Just get that, get that prime mid-Atlantic market. Mid-Atlantic market. I am very tired. And hey, if you, if you want to build in Iowa, you know, out on Long Island, I'd be 100% down for that. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, what about I that mean, land that was claimed that for that eminent domain a few years ago in Connecticut? I mean, surely it's not they're not developing it right now. Might as well build a racetrack. Yeah. Just like, please, just anywhere. Just just anywhere where there's people. Just racetrack. Just we're gonna make it like England. There's gonna be like more racetracks than people. Yeah, pretty much. It's like I can vouch for this. He's he's on the line. There is a Facebook page. Tear down a mall, build a racetrack. I'm on board. <laughs> it's lit. 
I mean, I mean, at the going rate, that's uh, that's going to be that project is probably going to be bleeding like five years. Thanks, Amazon. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon, for the second mm-hmm. boom period in American open wheel racing. <laughs> uh, one thing I think we ought to look out. One thing we ought to like is the fact that the IndyCar schedule, being the way it is, has Phoenix and Long Beach back to back like this for oh, a long so time. Dense. For a long time, back uh, back in the day, this is the way it used to be, where either Long Beach was ahead of Phoenix or Phoenix was ahead of Long Beach, and it saves the teams a lot of money by having it all just like really close by each other, to where it's like a mini West Coast swing. Um, yes. I like it. Last year, I think it was Phoenix, then it was Barber, then it was back out to Long oh, Beach, oh, which to, to me makes no damn sense at all. Yeah. Um, like it. it- like not to add on to this West Coast swing idea, but it would be pretty nice if they, you know, slotted Portland in between, you know, like the opening round at St. Pete and and you know Phoenix. Mm. Let's expand on that a little bit. Let's. I tell you what. Well, if we're gonna rearrange the schedule about this, let's take Sonoma. Let's move it to right after Long Beach. Because at oh, that point, it's like green at Sonoma. Yes, yes, and you're not having to deal with this drab, boring, um, you know, landscape. And you know what? I'll tell you what. Let's go and make it a California Triple Crown. Let's bring Fontana and have it as, ooh, Fontana season opener. Yeah, that's that's probably like Pivots. that is probably yes. like my number one fantasy idea. Where okay, you know, where we have you know the Indianapolis. Indianapolis is Memorial Day. Uh, Pocono's traditional day is Independence Day, but they've moved that to August. It would be nice if Fontana started started the season as the President's Day Classic in February, in late February. Oh, you Nothing but respect for my President's Day opener. <laughs> for my President's Day season opener. Figures, a king gives us a President's Day idea. <laughs> as you do. Speaking of uh, spreading uh, goodwill and um, perhaps uh, colonialism around the world, um, <laughs> now what would you do with a uh, with a disused LMP1 car that you're not going to race anymore? Uh, well, if you're Porsche, put it in the back garden. Und neue Rekordwagen. Very good, very good, King. So the Porsche 911 hybrid. As an Evo version, as part of Porsche's world tour for the 919, the car that won three World Endurance Championships and won three 24 hours of lot in its very brief but very memorable time as an active competitive car. So what are they going to do with it now that it's not in the WEC? Well, they're just going to have a whole lot of fun with it. Go on. Yes, yes. as so as Eva. Ooh, I, I just need to run through this list of upgrades to make this the fastest cap- like the fastest possible car they could do with the resources allotted to them by Porsche. It's not about fuel limits. It's about no limits. Hit us with it, King. <laughs> oh, my oh yes. Very nice. And King will be playing the role of Samoa Joe. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I do love the little the little subheader that they use for the their... A complete abandonment of technical regulations unchained for the record. Oh boy. It's like modern day Can-Am car. Well, they go, you know, almost 
full Audi in terms of weight reduction. Pretty much anything that was unnecessary for a single lap run was abandoned in terms of saving weight. They ended up dropping the the race trim dry weight of the car by 39 kilograms by dropping the air conditioning system, the lighting system, several sensors and electronic devices that allow communications to race control because there is no race control where they're going. Windscreen wiper, gone. Air jack system, gone. Several sensors that, you know, they use for in-race telemetry, gone. And, so, yep. If, yeah, if you're uh, familiar with the Gran Turismo series, this would be like taking the, uh, the Red Bull X2010 and then sticking a big stage four turbo on it. Yeah. Also, to improve performance, they decided to design and implement a four-wheel brake-by-wire system. Indi like, electronic individual control of each of the brakes of the four wheels to pretty much give the car better yaw control. So, like, you could brake extremely late, extremely hard without worrying about the car stepping out. Because guess what? The car is going to save your ass. Oh yeah, and that, that's that's ridiculous. You're gonna be able to brake later, accelerate harder, because they completely revamped the aero system. They have a new extremely massive rear wing. It steps out out of the back of the car. It's the fuck it rear wing. Yes, and they also implemented a drag reduction system, which wasn't allowed in LMP1. I believe LMP2 has a DRS system, but they decided... Because why yeah, not? Because why not? We want to be able to go faster down the straights. Also, the, the underwing, the underwing that's under the, the, the front section of the car, made that bigger. We're going for maximum downforce. They believe that uh, the, they've increased downforce by 53%. Good God. And the, what was it, the number I saw? They increased the aerodynamic efficiency by like 66%? Yep, 66% less drag. <sighs> so, King. That's, that's nuts. Um, they went around Spa. How fast no, did no, they no. go? No, no, no. I haven't gotten to the best part. The oh? increase in power. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Because uh, they believe that they've increased the power of uh, the output of the engine by a decent margin. So the internal combustion engine, they believe it was around 500 horsepower, uh, up that to 720 horsepower. Uh, the, the electric motors, uh, 400 to 440, less impressive. But it should be noted that they don't have to follow the equivalency of technology regulations of the WEC anymore. So it, they can use as much power within a single lap as they want. Altogether, oh, in your best John Heidau voice, 1,000 horsepower. Mm. And apparently John Heidau is now from, uh, from Scotland instead of northern England. <laughs> Close enough. I'm sorry, John. <laughs> yes, over a thousand horses. We are talking eleven hundred and sixty horsepower. Jesus that is Christ! A lot of horsepower. You thought that Suzuki Escudo Pike's peak car was something? You ain't seen shit yet. Oh God! And yes, the record has fallen at Spa. The new absolute track record is a one forty-one point eight. 
Yeah, so it goes right to the top of the power lapse board, just above the Koenigsegg 1-1. Hashtag suck it, Lewis. Hashtag not blessed. <laughs> a, lap of, a lap of spa in 101 seconds. Firstly, very much on brand. It's not Second 101 all, seconds, right? Holy they're, shit! They're not 100 seconds in a minute. <laughs> There's 60 oh, in a minute. Wow. I, I messed up. I misheard Dre. There is a 100. Wow. Yep. Lewis. You, Hi, you this is Ryan King in. from Matt. Um, <laughs> you can keep it in. I fucked up. Yeah. Ryan King for remedial math, okay. everybody. Yeah. Yes, yeah. 101 <laughs> seconds. 101.8. That is, uh, that, that, that's, that, 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 that's ridiculous. That, that's, that's out of this. Like, to put into perspective, that was a second faster than Lewis Hamilton's pole record-setting time when he qualified on pole position at Spa last year, and that was the pole that tied Schumacher's and, record. And, and the crazy thing is, not only did they have people sign up for this, they had people volunteer for this. Misserlin decided, hey, we heard what you're doing, and guess what? We want, to design, we, want in. we want to design for you a bespoke, super soft tire. The softest compound that we could possibly make. <laughs> yeah, it's got, it's, got, it's got a lasting distance of like 500 yards. <laughs> Give, like, live it up. Give it all the grip, buddy. <laughs> the, oh my goodness. What's, and what's crazy is that, I, aren't they trying to get the lap down to like a 136? Yeah, because remember, Whoa. this car has four-wheel drive. This car has four-wheel drive. Oh my! Stop! Stop! This is like, like this is like rewriting the record books here. It's like no, this it's is like taking the record book and, th and like, throwing it into the fireplace. This isn't just a simple rewrite. It's a simple de demol de uh, demolition. So, <laughs> like, there was a reason I opened up with that phrase. This is a Neuer Weckerdwagen because in the '30s, not only did Mercedes and Audi compete against each other on the Grand Prix scene. They also competed to each other to to see who could build the fastest car. They converted their Grand Prix car and just like ignored all the rules and say how fast can we make this go? And eventually, like, of course they got people killed, but they were going like 260 miles an hour <laughs> in the 1930s on public roads. Yeah. On public roads. Jesus. Oh my God. Without so, VTech. Yes, without without VTech. But oh, man. yes. So, um, King, where is it headed to next? Yes, the Neue Wecker Dragon is heading <laughs> off on a world tour. The the nine nine tribute tour continues. The next time we will see the nine nineteen Evo will be May twelfth, doing a demo demo lap of the legendary Nurburgring Nordschleife before the start of the twenty four hour Nurburgring race. After that. Between July 12th and 15th, we will see the 919 at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, as well as the Festival of Porsche at Brands Hatch on September 2nd. The car will also participate at the Porsche Rensport Reunion at Laguna Seca, California, September 26th to the 29th. Um, I'm going to put this out here. I know it would never happen for safety reasons, and I know that it would never happen because they wouldn't want it upstage the 24-hour race happening just later. But if they find one Porsche factory driver who is foolhardy enough to do it, <laughs> full attack lap, challenge Stefan Beloff's record. Oh, we, I, I heard... I think they would Friends do it. 11 is out there. Fr friend of the show... 
Pat. <laughs> Pat Hofstetter. He, he, he brought up this idea to me, and I was like, I don't know, guys. <laughs> <laughs> if they're willing to yeah. go 136 around Spa when their previous best lap was 17 seconds slower, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Then you that's have right. to take at least one attempt. Dre, Dre, like, that Dre is do, do you know what Bellos record around the Nord's life is? Six minutes, 11 seconds. Yeah, six minutes, 11 seconds. Uh huh. In 1983. Yeah, 1983, the then World Sports Car Championship ran the Nordschleife, and in a group, in a group C prototype, he set the record. Now that that's insane. That, 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 that that's unfathomable. Like six eleven with traffic. Yeah, with traffic. So like, uh, fuck. Like <laughs> the GT three cars. The GT three cars can reach the top speeds that the the Group C cars do, but they can't corner as quickly. They they just don't have the downforce. This car could do it easily. That, that, that's that's biblical. <laughs> One thing I also no. want to see here: um, Pikes Peak Hill Climb. It's all tarmac <laughs> now, and I'm just saying oh, Lord. that the record is achievable. It's eight minutes thirteen set by Sebastian Loeb in a hey. Peugeot two hundred eight. I mean, if 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 they're gonna do Pikes Peak, and you know they're doing they're doing Rensport reunion, the Speedway is open. Indianapolis, <laughs> go for the track. I mean, the Speedway would never allow it. They would never allow anything other than an Indy car to hold the absolute record. But... One of Porsche's factory drivers, Roman Duma, is a three-time defending champion of the Pikes Peak Hill Climb, and he won Le Mans in a Porsche 919 Hybrid in 2016. He's, mm-hmm. he's the right man for the job. Like this tribute tour cannot only have, cannot only have four stops. We need to make this tour longer than four stops. We need more. We need hot laps around Silverstone, please and thank you. Like old school Silverstone, please, <laughs> if possible. But, uh, it's not. I, but, I, yeah. I know. I know. It's uh, but like I, I I need this to run Silverstone. Like that is a fun high speed track. I want to see this thing fly. <laughs> we like watching, uh, like watching the early white. Not literally. Games. Not literally. Don't 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 be Mark Webber. No. Don't be Mark Webber. No, don't be Mark Webber. Be like do anything, but don't be Mark Webber. Actually, um, <laughs> come on, come on, ACO. Just let it do Le Mans. Just let Circuit de Los, Just a couple laps. Let's see what it can do. <laughs> can we break the three minute just, barrier? Just, <laughs> can we sure. obliterate the three minutes? Retire anyway. It doesn't have any lights. Yep. <laughs> It's a Formula Gran Turismo. Get out of Dodge for, for this week. Uh, yes. Oh, RJ, tell us a little bit about Super GT and Okayama. Yes. Um, so we had the start of the 2018 Super GT season at Okayama International Circuit. There are two main ways that you can watch this. 
you can watch it in full um, on the video on demand on Nismo TV, or you can watch the extended highlights on Jensen Button's YouTube channel, Jensen Button TV, with commentary from Toby Moody of MotoGP and Rallycross and WEC fame. Um, either way, you're going to have a good time with this. Um, Honda have, uh, it's been documented, their struggles in Formula One are well known, but they had a very good preseason test, and they came to to Okayama, locked out the front row with the number 17 Keihei Nenesets of Kodai Sukakoshi and Takashi Kogure. Now, this car had won only one race. It was the closest race in Super GT history, won by 0.25 one thousandths of a second when Sukakoshi was actually a rival of Kogure's and Sukakoshi beat his now current co-driver to the line. That was the last time that they won, and that was back in July 25th, 2010. So this team was overdue a victory at some point. They led away from pole position. Two of the Nissan GTRs got a rocket start off the rolling start as we turned out a jump start, so they were afflicted with drive-through penalties. Um, that opened the door for Jensen Button and Naoki Yamamoto in their Ray Brianna sets to put their way through the field. Now, I know Jensen Button was going to be a big deal. He is, the, after all, the first F1 world champion to race in the series. Uh, he did very well. He did not have the quickest of opening stints, but it was by design because Team Kunimitsu were going for a strategy where they would not change tires during the race. Remember, in Super GT, you can change any amount of tires from four to two to zero. So they wanted to go the whole race on one set of tires, uh, knowing that they would have the benefit of tires that already been warmed up instead of having to rewarm a fresh set of tires in a series with no tire warmers and on a track where it was very, very cold. So it played to their advantage. In fact, they briefly jumped the Keihin sets on the track after the pit stops had closed out, only to be repassed again. But Naoki Yamamoto, with his credit, did a fine job of reeling in the deficit over the closing laps. And with two laps to go, he had a chance to pass for the victory, just got held up in traffic in the exit of the final corner, uh, taking the final lap. So Kahan Real racing for the first time since July of 2010, win a Super GT race and lead a Honda 1-2 finish. With Naoki Yamamoto and Jensen Button picking up a podium, Button's first Super GT podium in just his second start, which is quite an impressive accomplishment. Shoutouts as well as third place defending champions Rio Hirakawa and Nick Cassidy. They were buried down in ninth on the grid, but Cassidy at his opening stint alone made up seven places, was high up as second place, and briefly led before his pit stop and still turned it into a very good third place finish to, uh, to defend the championship. Over in the GT300 class, which is oodles and boodles of fun, Team Up Garage, a team that was in their fourth season, had never scored a podium finish up to this point. Um, with a driver lineup they assembled in the offseason of former GT500 guys Yuki Nakayama and Takashi Kobayashi, they, they also gambled on strategy. The top three finishers in GT300 did not change our floor tires. Uh, they went the whole distance without uh, changing tires on the stop, and it worked for them. They ended up taking their first ever victory to open the season for this team, um, and the first win as well for Nakayama, who's a GT300 champion, but his only win in the series did not come in a Super GT race. It came in an Asian Le Mans series event in 2013 that counted for GT300 championship points. So that is Yikes. considered non-canon. But that was Nakayama's very first win and Kobayashi's first win after being demoted from GT500, which had to feel very, very good for him. Um, 
and the D-Station Porsche team, which is run by King Will Like This, former Seattle Mariners closer Kazuhiro Sasaki, they came back from 20th on the grid as low as 22nd during the open end of the race to finish second with Tomonobu Fuji and Sven Muller, the Porsche Works driver. It wasn't all good times, though. We had a very heavy crash very early on in the race involving Gymkhana driver and privateer Yusaku Shibata. He was taken to hospital after complaining of neck injuries. It turns out he's going to be out of action for eight weeks with a compression fracture in his back um, after a head-on crash, which was very, very ugly and for some unknown reason did not necessitate a safety car at one of the busiest portions of the track. Um, but that aside... Very, very good race. Again, go out of your way to watch either the highlights or the uh, or the full race on Nismo TV or on Jensen Button's YouTube channel. It's going to be a great season. I highly recommend it. Go read some of the stuff that I do for Daily Sports Car. I'm very proud of a lot of the work that I'm putting in, and I'm really just tickled to death of all the positive feedback I've been getting from like established people who've been doing this for a while. Like, what the heck? I don't get it, but I appreciate it, and I thank you all so much for that. Yeah, like I, I watched highlights. It seemed like a very entertaining race. Um, probably gonna, probably gonna be watching the next race in full. Not live though. Probably on replay. Yes, because that is a big race. It's the Fuji GT five hundred kilometers. It's on the Golden Week holiday of May fourth. It's maybe the only race that's tied to a specific date on the calendar. Much like mixed martial arts on New Year's Eve or pro wrestling in the Tokyo Dome on January the 4th. It's a big event. There's going to be over 100,000 spectators for the weekend. It's going to be a great time, and it's on a Friday. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a good season, y'all. Agreed. So what are we looking forward to uh, this weekend in motorsport? Um, this weekend, what do we have? We have another Formula One race. We have another IndyCar race. Uh, we have IMSA's back at Long Beach. Um, got NASCAR at Bristol. <laughs> Yeehaw! Oh, boy. And, and we have the Romy Pre. Rome? It's going to be a busy weekend. No, no, no the, the Formula E Rome E Pre. Oh, it's very important how you pronounce it, apparently. <laughs> Are we gonna... so yeah, it's probably going to be stacked. It's probably going to be another doubleheader next week, I reckon, most likely. Um, i have to wait and see how it goes. Like, I actually kind of want China to be nice and tame for once so we can cram it all into one show. <laughs> <laughs> like, odds of that, probably unlikely, given the way this F1 season's played out so far. Like, But uh, we'll have to wait and see how it goes. But uh, I think it's about time we get out of Dodge, guys. Yeah. yeah. Kyle Busch yeah. won his NASCAR race. I think that I think we've covered all the high points. Yeah, I think we. Yeah, let's One get more, out of if here. I may. Uh, One more, if I may. Oh. Um, Go on, Chris. So NASCAR uh, officials uh, missed a critical call, no call late in the race, uh, where they should have called Kevin Harvick for having an uncontrolled tire on pit lane late in the going. NASCAR, after mm. the race, admitted that they missed the call for Kevin Harvick and he finished ended up finishing second but they nailed Ryan Blaney for a similar offense um not Blaney <laughs> yes Ryan Blaney and so NASCAR's president Brent Dewar uh was on Twitter for a few hours after the race you know, trying to defend the organization and he even invited a fan to go into race control just to see what they do 
Um, oh, damn. Very, very uh, interesting interactions that he had on Twitter. Um, not a lot of people were Yikes. pleased with NASCAR and how race control did not do their jobs uh, in Texas. That's going to be a storyline coming forward because NASCAR can't seem to get out of their own way. While IndyCar made no calls that, in retrospect, you know, ended up doing okay for them. Maybe maybe Simon weren't that Pagino right, but... Cannot, yeah. And also Simon Pagano cannot play Jenga to save his ass. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no. Not in the slightest, because Simon Pagano can't do anything right on the Pensy games, God bless him. But he is very good at signing race suits. Absolutely. He and Joseph Newgarden had a nice autograph war, and... Uh, well, even though Newgarden signed the bottom of Pagano's car, Pagano signed the inside of all of Newgarden's race suits. So, hey, that might have helped Newgarden get into victory lane. You never know. <laughs> never know. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Um, check that out on social media if you haven't already. They're fun times for everybody, indeed. Let's get out of here. Places you can find us one more time. YouTube.com forward slash motorsport101. Facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. Our personal handles at Harrison101HD, at RJ O'Connell, at Ryan Eric King, and at C The Harday. Again, one more time, Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Five bucks gets you early access to both this show and Bike Live, except for Bike Live, which will be one dollar for this weekend, one weekend only, because Argentina was a bit special. Again, absolutely chaotic race in Argentina that's going to be dominant. We're going to go at least two hours on this show, I almost guarantee it at this point. Um, it's going to be mayhem. Um, but yeah, check that out if you haven't already, or a ton of other benefits on there as well. Um, I've been Andre Harrison. Again, they've been Ryan King, RJ O'Connell, and Christopher the Harday. Until next time, thank you very much for for listening, and I'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara. Later, y'all. Peace. Bye. Did I ever t did I tell you as well that I that um, during the weekend we uh, we we overheard uh, rumblings of two people trying to get it on in the hotel lobby? <laughs> oh, that's always a fun time. That, that's yeah. a, that's a story for uh, you know a different episode. A different episode. <laughs> story time with RJ. Yes. So let me. So so it all involves. Uh, so it all involves some rubber masks, uh, a late whoa, night whoa, whoa, masks. Whoa, 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 whoa,